text will not be in your uh, bulletin this morning, but if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. It is good to be with you this morning. Obviously, I wish it was under different circumstances, and our prayers do go out to Brian and his family this morning. Uh, But I'm glad to be here because in many ways, uh, this is the type of church we're hoping to to plant in Spartanburg. Uh, And so it's it's excellent to be able to worship with y'all this morning. We appreciate your prayers that have been going out to us for some time and the financial support that you've been giving to us as a church also. So Romans 8 this morning as we look to God's word, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, we do come before you now asking that you would meet with us and that you would bless us and that you would encourage us from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read verse 18 to you one more time and then ask you a question. Uh, Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed to us. Here's a question. Does your way of looking at the world, your worldview, your religion, your your non-religion, the grid that you look at things through, does it allow you to make that kind of statement? That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, with the hope that is to be revealed to us. Where does suffering fit in your worldview? How do you explain it? What do you do with it? Uh, what do you do with the email like the one I received a few years ago saying, asking me to pray because a friend's six-year-old, a television had toppled over and hit him in the head, and he was on the way to the emergency room with internal bleeding and probably a skull fracture? What do you do if your loved one is on a medical mission to Afghanistan and is gunned down by the Taliban. What do you do with the heartbreak, like the Haybigs are going through this morning, with the heartbreak and, and the frustrations of life in this world, with the job losses, with the struggles, 
with the breakups, with the difficulties. What do you do with all that? What do you do with the suffering that we all face at one time or the other? Uh, do you avoid it? You know, you can only do that for so long. Do you try to escape it to maybe create an inception-like dream world? And we know that dream worlds have their own problems and their own suffering. Do you ignore it? Try to turn the channel of life, to turn the television of life to a different channel, uh, hoping that it'll eventually pass you by and that'll be somebody else's problem to deal with. What do you do with it? Well, we're looking in the book of Romans this morning, a chapter that has much to say about the, the, the topic of suffering. And we're going to only touch on it briefly this morning. But what does the Bible say about suffering? Honestly, there's a lot of bad Christian teaching about suffering. Uh, there's the sort that would say, you know, the reason that you're suffering, the reason that you're having difficulties in your life is this, is you don't have enough faith. If you'd only believe more, if you would only follow Jesus more closely, then you wouldn't be having these problems. Uh, but Jesus himself says, in this world, you'll have much trouble. In this world, you'll have much trouble. And the Bible indicates that, for, that while for a believer, heaven is our ultimate destination, there's going to be a lot of suffering along that path to glory. And I, I don't really like that. I'd kind of like to remove that from the Bible if I could. Uh, and I imagine that you don't really like that either. But the Bible gives us resources like nothing else that will enable us to, to understand and to deal with suffering. I want to ask you this morning, does your worldview give you these kinds of resources for dealing with suffering? Uh, there's three things I want us to see this morning the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us explanation and expectation and a helper. An explanation, an expectation, and a helper. First of all, an explanation of suffering. Uh, anybody who has ever suffered with a, a mystery illness for some time in your life, if you've ever been through something like that or known somebody who's, who's gone through something like that, maybe going through something that's taken years to diagnose, you've been to doctor after doctor, and nobody can quite figure out what's wrong with you, you know the relief that you feel when you finally get a diagnosis. Here's what's going on with you. Here's what the problem is. And you're finally able to say, okay, this is what I'm up against. This is what I'm fighting against. This is the reason that I feel the way that I feel. You have an explanation for why things are the way they are, and that helps you to move forward. Uh, when you look around at suffering in general, the Bible gives an explanation of suffering. Um, it makes sense of suffering in a way that no other worldview can. Now, it's not the only worldview that tries to explain suffering. But the explanation, at the end of the day, makes all the difference in how you approach suffering. For example, if you've got an atheistic worldview... Um, you may not like suffering, you may not especially enjoy suffering, but at the end of the day, all you can say is, suffering is the way that nature operates. It's just the way things are. The strong survive, and the weak get weeded out. And that's actually a good thing in this worldview, unless you happen to be one of the ones that get weeded out. 
it, it makes no sense in this sort of worldview to help the poor and the needy. Why would you do that? That makes absolutely no sense because you're just getting them out of the way. You're getting the, the weakest out of the way so that the strong like yourself uh, have more and so that you're better able to face the world. There'll be more resources for you. Now, do you really want to operate? Do you really operate with that view of the world? The Bible offers a very different explanation and it's hinted at in verses 19 through 21 here. Let me read these again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, These verses are obviously looking ahead, but they're also telling us something about the present condition of the world. Uh, Verse 20 tells us that the creation was subjected to to futility. Uh, Verse 21 tells us that the creation is in bondage to decay. Verse 22 tells us that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, how do you you make sense of all this? Well, the Bible's one story. It all hangs together. And to make sense of all this, you have to go back to the book of Genesis. Uh, We're going to look there at verse 17. Uh, Let me set up what's happened thus far in the book of Genesis. Uh, God has created man. He's created Adam and Eve. He's placed them in the garden. They've rebelled against God. They've disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And because of their sin, because of their disobedience, God is placing a curse on mankind that extends to the creation itself. We're going to pick it up in the middle. Listen to verse 17 of Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust. And to dust you shall return. Part of the curse, part of the fall is that God has subjected the creation itself to futility and to decay. That man's fall, Adam's sin, has a cosmic significance. Nature is not what it's supposed to be. Now, this is a beautiful late summer day, and I imagine a lot of us are going to go outside and enjoy the beauty of creation this afternoon. But it's not what it was meant to be. Uh, It's kind of like a heavyweight boxer who's chained in the corner trying to box. Or it's like LeBron James with 500-pound ankle weights on trying to dunk a basketball. It's not free to be what it's meant to be. And not only is it not free to be what it's meant to be, it's also caught in this constant cycle of decay. Everything dies. Everything decays. There's always a new blight. 
There's always a new insect. There's always something that's threatening crops and trees. I mean, Monsanto is never going to go out of business. There's there's always going to be a need uh, for that sort of thing because of the curse, because of the decay that we face. It's the second law of thermodynamics in action. The whole universe is in decay. It's dying. It's in pain. It groans as in the pains of childbirth. And ladies, you know what that's like. And husbands, you heard the things your wife said when they were giving birth. Uh, So you know that that's how creation feels at this very moment. It's frustrated. It's decaying. It's groaning. And so in all this, we have an answer to the question, why is the world like this? Why is the world like this? Why is it filled with suffering and death? We have an answer to that question. Now, we may not have an answer to the question, Why am I suffering at this particular time in the way that I'm suffering? But we know why the world is the way it is. The roots of this are in Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. And we see in this that God seriously hates sin. And if you don't believe that, just look at death. It's all the proof we need to know that God seriously hates sin. So we have... An explanation. Now, you're probably not very encouraged at this this moment. I understand that. We have an explanation of why things are the way they are. We also have an expectation that one day things are going to be made right. That one day things aren't going to be like this anymore. And that's true both in nature and for mankind. The creation is frustrated. It's groaning. It's decaying. But it was subjected to all of this in the context of hope. It groans, you notice, as in the pains of childbirth, not as in the pains of death. See, God has a design to ultimately deliver creation. That one day the creation is going to be free from the curse. One day the creation isn't going to be frustrated anymore. It's going to be liberated. It's going to be what it was always meant to be. Isaiah 11, you might jot that down and look at it later, paints a picture of what this glorious, renewed creation will be like. It's telling us things like the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. All these people that, all these animals that don't like each other are going to be hanging out together. And their kids are going to be hanging out together. It's going to be a glorious new creation. Now, let me take a little bit of a rabbit trail here and and make a point that perhaps we don't make often enough. Notice here that God is at work restoring not just creation, not just you and me, but creation itself as well. He's at work restoring nature. Now, what that means is, is that the creation is important. Uh, in Genesis 1, verses 28 and 29, God calls Adam and Eve to be, be caretakers of this creation. And that's a charge that extends to us still today. And what this means is, is that we don't abuse the creation. They we're actually called to be caretakers of the creation because the created order is one of the ways in which God actually makes himself known. He makes his name known through the creation. And when we attack the creation, when we abuse the creation, when we neglect the creation, in some ways we're attacking the name of God himself. 
Because we're saying basically, God, this is what we think of your artwork. This is what we think of what you have made. We don't think it's worth taking care of. We don't think it's worth preserving. And so we don't just say, well, it's just a tree. Let's cut them all down. But neither do we worship creation. The creation is important to God, but it's not God. So neither do you say, it's a tree. You can't cut them down. Uh, Secondly, notice in all this, the material world is not inherently evil. The creation is good, but fallen. And so we can and should enjoy created things. Our future in heaven is not just this spiritual realm where there's nothing that's, that's nothing real. Uh, our future is, is tied up with a renewed creation where we ourselves have new bodies, uh, where everything is made the way it's supposed to be. And so it's good to be involved now in stewardship of the creation, in developing the potentials of the creation. Uh, to be involved in culture building, in building the culture of downtown Greenville and downtown Spartanburg. To be at work making good music, good art, good food. Uh, the creation, although fallen, is good. It's good for us to be involved in it, not exploiting it, but in developing its potentials. All right, back, back from my rabbit trail. Uh, we've got an expectation that this creation, this good but fallen creation, is going to be renewed. That one day, earthquakes and tsunamis and oil spills, that all of these things are going to be things of the past. It's all going to be new. But it's not just the creation. It's us too. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I mean, imagine the day, you know, we've all, we've read the stories of Jesus uh, healing the lame and the blind. Imagine that day when you, when that really, you can see that, when blind people can now see, when lame people are actually running around. When we, every one of us is, is actually free from all of our physical infirmities, that's a glorious thing to look forward to. And again, that tells us that God cares about our physical bodies. We have a reason now to fight against cancer, to fight against disease. We don't just say, well, survival of the fittest. The weak are just getting weeded out. The human race will be better off. No, we work and we labor and we fight against the ravages of sickness and disease because a sickened and diseased body is not the body we were made And it's not the body that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we look forward to that. We look forward to the redemption of our bodies. But then the text also tells us that we look forward to the day of our adoption. The day of our adoption. Now, a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian, is somebody who has repented of their rebellion against God, 
who has also repented of their attempts to establish their own worth, their own righteousness, and is instead trusting in the work of Jesus for their right standing with God. And at the moment that a person does that, they are made right with God and they are received, they are adopted into God's family. God adopts you, makes you his child. Now you hear people say from time to time today, well, we're all God's children. And the Bible certainly does say that we're all God's offspring in the sense uh, that we're all created in his image. But it's very careful only to speak of those who have received Christ as those who are then adopted into God's family. Naturally, we are all estranged from God. We are not a part of His family. But through faith in Christ, we become children of God. And so what that means right now is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted. You already belong to God. You are already His child, and you have all the privileges that go along with that. But your adoption hasn't been made known publicly in the way that it one day will be made known. I mean, imagine for a minute growing up poor and destitute. You're in some foreign country, you're living in the slums, you're living in squalor, and then this wealthy family from another country comes in and they say, you know what, I'm going to adopt you. And they do all the paperwork, they jump through all of the hoops, Everything's signed off on, and you're legally theirs. But for whatever reason, you can't make the trip to your new home yet. Transportation still has to be lined up. And it's going to be a few months before you actually are physically with your new family. You're adopted. You're theirs. You have their name, but you're not with them yet. You're adopted, you can talk on the phone, you can write letters, you can send email, you can do all of these things, but you're not there yet. Uh, things about you have changed because you're part of this family, but you're still living in the slum, and, and everybody, although they can tell something's different, they can't tell like they will be able to tell how great your new family is. They can't really see it yet. They can't really see whose family you've been adopted into like they will one day. But on the day you arrive, on the day that transportation is finally arranged and you're taken to your new home and your parents show you your room, then you're really adopted. Then everybody can see what a glorious family you're part of. First uh, Corinthians describes Christians as the foolish the weak, those who are not of noble birth, the low, the despised, the things that are not. But there's a day coming when our status and privileges that we have as a result of the fact that we are sons and daughters of God will be made known publicly. It's going to be a matter of public knowledge how much the God of the universe loves you and cares about you, and delights in you. Matthew thirteen forty three says that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that expectation of glory. And, and that's huge because do you know how often 
Wrong expectations trip us up. I remember years ago, I think it was 1989, 1990, when the, the Michael Keaton Batman movies were coming out. Okay, no, horrible compared to the new ones. But the first one had a lot of hype, and everybody was talking about how great it was. And so I went to the mall and stood in line at the mall for an hour to see this great movie. And I was just disappointed. It just didn't live up to the hype. I had wrong expectations of what this movie was actually going to bring to my life. It wasn't the life-changing event I had hoped it would be. Uh, You and I are always going to be profoundly disappointed with life if we think that this world is going to meet our expectations. If we think that this world is going to give us everything that we had hoped and dreamed for. We're always going to be looking around to people and places and things to give us that thing that we're looking for, to give us that life that we're looking for, and we're always going to be disappointed. But if we realize that this is a fallen and a broken world, but that that this fallen and broken world will one day be made new, that enables me right now to appreciate and to enjoy God's good creation while realizing that it's going to be incredibly hard. And that there's going to be suffering involved. And that the real party ain't going to be here. But there's one waiting down the road for the believer in Jesus Christ that will be more incredible than anything we've ever experienced. Uh, Doyshevsky put it like this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, For all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. See, that kind of expectation makes me look at my sufferings today very differently. Verse 18, let's back up to that first verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. And Paul is holding out his hands like a scale. And on one side, you have the sufferings of this present time. And on the other side, you have the glory that's to be revealed to us or in us. And this is what he's telling you. When you're stressed out because you've got too much work to do, we've all been there, It's not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. When you're sick with the flu, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. When somebody that you love is at death's door, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. When terrorists attack, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. 
If you're a Christian and you're living in Sudan and you yourself or a family member is being tortured or sold into slavery, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's coming. Comparing the weight of the sufferings of this present age with the weight of the glory that's coming is like comparing the weight of a feather to the weight of an aircraft carrier. There's no comparison. Now, Paul here is not being unrealistic or unfeeling. He still calls suffering, suffering. It's still hard. He's not saying it's not hard. He's not saying, well, we'll get over it. Quit your whining. But he is saying, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it is, the future is indescribably better. So Paul says here, yes, you must suffer with Christ. But look at what's coming. The pain that you're going through now is not worth comparing to the glory and the joy that lies ahead. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I'd wager that all of us have a hard time holding on to that. I imagine that your pastor's having a hard time holding on to that hope this morning. Even when we really believe that, we have a hard time holding on to it. And that's why God gives us a helper. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And the picture, I think, is this. It's of us groaning in prayer, unable to say much more, much more than, uh, Daddy, help. Daddy, help. And the Holy Spirit, in the midst of all of that groaning and suffering, groaning with us and praying for us. And here's what I want you to get out of all this. If you're suffering, or perhaps when you suffer in the future, realize that suffering is a part of life in a fallen world. There's no way around it. But... It's not the way things are supposed to be. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And it's not always going to be like this. Jesus is making everything new. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He's given you, even now, the Holy Spirit as a down payment of what's to come and as a help to you. On those days when you're too weak, to cry out when you feel like you're too weak to go on, the Holy Spirit is there to remind you that you're still precious to the Father. That you're still a part of the family of God. That you're God's child. He's given His Son for you. He's given His Spirit to you. 
And you may not know what to pray or how to pray or even be able to pray. But the Spirit does. And He's praying for you because you're the child of a Father who loves you. Would you pray with me? God, would you cause this explanation and this expectation to change the way we think about suffering, to change the very way we think about life in a fallen world? Father, would you help us not to expect that everything's going to be great and wonderful here, but to expect and to know for certain that with you, everything will be great and wonderful and perfect. And would you, Holy Spirit, bear us up and intercede for us as you promise you will? Would you help us when our priorities are messed up? Would you help us when we don't see this? Would you help us when we're mired in the pain and depression that often comes with suffering? And Father, would you help Brian and his family this morning? Would you bear them up? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.